according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. It's kind of a long chapter. We want to hit it hard, although communion Sundays are the hardest of all the Sundays to cover the material that we're covering in our chapter-by-chapter survey of the book of Isaiah. If nothing else, I hope the the previous 29 weeks have uh, whetted your appetite for uh, what has got to be one of the deepest books ever by an Old Testament author. I believe Isaiah uh, understood grace through faith, and, and you can preach the whole Bible in the, in the book of Isaiah. And that just the meat of doctrine that was available to him, the meat of doctrine that he communicated in this book, is, uh, is absolutely extraordinary. Well, today we're going to cover chapter 30. We're going to talk about um, coming up with a plan that's not, your, that's not God's plan, and uh, operating by a spirit that's not God's spirit. And this is what Jerusalem was guilty of, and uh, the consequences are, as you might expect, um, spectacular when you advance when you abandon the plan of god and decide to pursue your own course that uh, there are consequences for that in the divine discipline of god's hand upon you and uh, we'll see that unfold here in the process of this chapter here today before we get started let's pause for a moment of silent prayer ask god to set aside distractions and to bless our time of study shall we pray Almighty Father, this is our blessing once again to assemble together. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that day by day, with each passing moment, Father, you are faithful. Day by day and year by year. Father, as we see the years come and go, I think back over 25 years. My first Sunday morning I ever visited Austin Bible Church was Mother's Day Sunday of 1990. And Father, just uh, I thank you for all your faithfulness, year in and year out. Give you the praise and the glory, Father calling upon you now on this day to glorify your son, equip us with your truth. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to do something different today as long as I have a new toy to play with. So rather than the slideshow, I just left that up there to tease everybody. Um, That's a cover from last week's slideshow. I don't have a slideshow for this week. For this week, I'm going to put the text up on the screen like this. And we'll save ourselves a lot of time flipping by clicking. And uh, hopefully if it's large enough now, we may need to experiment with the text. I understand last hour the text was too small. And I was asked in grace, can you make the text larger? I wanted to reply in grace, can you move a couple rows closer? But I'm not a legalist. So we'll, uh, that's as big as I can make it. Doesn't probably have to be that big. We'll find a happy medium and I'll use, uh, that's good? All right. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord. You ever have days like that? If you, are you a parent? All right. Well, God is a parent and he deals with rebellious children and in particular, The biggest rebels of all are the Jewish people, those that he's called to be his children. And the northern kingdom was bad enough, and they are being swept away by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom had the advantage of learning from the northern kingdom's mistakes, and they should have observed their older sister, Samaria. Jerusalem should have observed and learned from that and been humbled and repentant. And in fact, they did not learn, and they made matters even worse. And so when the southern kingdom is swept away by the Babylonians, their judgment is double compound by virtue of the fact that they had been given much more in terms of grace and much more in terms of warnings. Let's uh, read the first five verses and uh, come back to the top and make comment on those verses. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, not my plan. They make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, The safety of Pharaoh will be your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt your humiliation. 
for their princes are at Zoan, or Zon, their ambassadors arrive at Haines. Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also reproach. All right, now here we have the warning. This really serves as a follow-up to chapter 28, but it is in progress. This is why they are adding sin to sin. Back when it was in the planning stages, he warned them against these entanglements. In fact, he called it a, a covenant with death. They themselves called it a covenant with death. And he was warning them about it back in chapter 28. They ignored those warnings. And they were, even now, they're in the process of sending their ambassadors, sending their representatives. They are in, they're in route even as we speak. All right. And in the days before uh, Fox News and satellite coverage and updates from reporters in the field, uh, it may be that the, uh, the population or many of the people in Jerusalem didn't realize that their king had already sent the messengers to try to seal the deal. They'd already plundered much of the wealth of Jerusalem in order to purchase the safety they thought that they could purchase. And uh, we'll talk about that, the caravans that's laden with all the treasures that uh, is being put at risk by shipping it all off to Egypt. And uh, in really a a, uh, kind of a scheme to try to solve your own problems instead of trusting in the Lord, instead of listening to the prophet that the Lord has sent to you to, uh, to listen to. So really there's four overall points I want to get at in the process of this chapter. The first of which, Judah's alliance with Egypt was wrong when it was planned, And the sin is doubled when that plan was executed. Judah's alliance with Egypt was wrong when it was planned, and the sin was doubled when that plan was executed. That's why it talks about adding sin to sin there in verse 1. You are compounding the sin. We discuss this in a lot of different contexts. When we talk about the mental attitude sin that precedes the overt sin, you actually sin multiple times before you ever accomplish the overt sin because you're accomplishing mental attitude sins behind the overt activity of what you're doing. In chapter 28, you might remember if you were here a couple weeks ago, in chapter 28, this planned alliance was termed a covenant with death. And we had uh, the expression there that was found in verses 14 and 15. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. And you think, well, who, who would make an agreement that they know is a lie to begin with, <laughs> Right? Well, we're going to see more about that today. We're going to see more about people that are all too happy to believe the lie because they do not want to hear the truth. It absolutely angers them to hear the truth. Their soul is provoked against the truth. So they accumulate to themselves ear ticklers. They accumulate to themselves teachers in accordance with their own desire. Uh, People that will tell them what they want to hear. Tell them they're okay. They don't want to hear preachers preaching about sin or preaching the Word of God that convicts them in, in the areas that need, they need to be convicted in. All right? So this is our second time now for the Lord to rebuke this planned alliance, this hope of rescue that somehow Egypt is going to save them from the Assyrians. No, the Lord said that the Lord is going to save them from the Assyrians. Trust in the Lord. He's the one that's promised. And then, by the way, if you'd have done this in the first place, the Assyrians wouldn't be bugging you right now. But see, what happened was King Ahaz went and he called the Assyrians to try to help him against Damascus. And now he needs the Egyptians to help him against Assyria. And every time he continues in this pattern of sin, he's simply making it worse and making it worse and making it worse and making it worse. We talk about that when we talk about David. Committed his adultery and ended up, what did he do? He had to commit murder to try to cover his tracks against the adultery. And the sin pattern just sucks you in and it cycles and you're adding sin to sin, sin to sin, sin to sin. And before you know it, the hand of God's discipline is on you for many more reasons than it would have been that first time if you had just confessed and repented and, and moved on. That's the lesson we want to glean out of this. And when we talk about executing a plan but not my plan, <laughs> I think that's key. That's huge. Not only in the Isaiah context, but for us today in our application, the plan of God is always better than any plan of not God. All right? And any other plan is not the plan of God. It's, and we could define it as the plan of not God. All right? It's the plan of the posers. 
the counterfeits, Satan and the fallen angels that are posing as if they are going to be like the Most High God. All right, and, and those that follow after those not-God plans are serving the adversary. They're committing blasphemy against the Lord God. And there's no wonder they're coming under the discipline that they're coming under. So the plan of God is always better than any plan of not-God. All right? He doesn't expect us to create our own plan. He expects us to be humble and obedient, walking in His plan. Run with endurance the race that's set before you. He doesn't expect you to create your own plan. He's not asking you to chart your own course in the Christian walk. He's already done that. In fact, He did that before the foundation of the world. We studied Ephesians 2.10 last hour, that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, by the way, He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We don't choose our path. He chooses it, and we are humble and obedient to pursue what He has designed. All right. Isaiah 8 19, 1 Chronicles 10, 13 and 14. If you're not familiar with these texts, I encourage you to remind yourself, you should know the Isaiah 8. We were there a while ago. What was that, 22 weeks ago we were there in Isaiah chapter 8? Don't you remember? When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should, not, should they consult the dead on the behalf of the living? Ask yourself, what are you really doing? Are you, are you basing your life on your horoscope? Are you basing your life on demons? Are you basing your life on false religions, false gods? Who are you listening to? Why are you ignoring the voice of your Creator who loves you, who redeemed you, who set forth a plan for your blessing? It seems to me, since He's done all that for you already, that's the one you should be seeking when you're seeking wisdom, when you're seeking guidance. He is the one with a plan. Should not a people consult their God? Amen. And that's why we're under the authority of the Word of God today. We're here to listen. We're here to have the the eyes to see and the ears to hear. We want God to speak to us today in His wisdom, equipping us in every good work and word. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 13 and 14. Why was the Lord so angry with King Saul? King Saul was a loser at the end of his life. He died the sin and the death. The end of his reign was was a train wreck. We're told, so Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord, because of the word, notice, the word of the Lord, which he did not keep. There were active commands that he disobeyed. And then there was other words that he, uh, he went and did things he was not commanded to do. So now he's added sin to sin. He has sin of omission as well as sin of commission, we say. Because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep. Also, because he asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry of it. What a hypocrite. He'd, earlier in his reign, he'd driven away all the, de- the, the witches and, so- and practitioners of witchcraft and all the fortune tellers and so forth. And then later in his life, when he was too afraid to consult, kings, uh, to, uh, consult of the Lord, he went to Endor and he consulted this witch, disguised himself and, uh, in an episode there, which makes me laugh every time, <laughs> because I, I think she was a huckster. I think she was a charlatan and a phony. And when... when she brought up the real spirit of Samuel from, uh, from Sheol. I think that she herself was pretty terrified of the process. All right? And she realizes, oh my goodness, this truly is the prophet Samuel on, on my hands here. All right? But this is what he was doing. He uh, asked counsel of a medium, t- making inquiry of it, and did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he killed him and turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. And so here in First Chronicles, we have the divine viewpoint commentary on the reign of King Saul and the reason why the Lord ripped the kingdom from him and handed it to, to King David, all right? Any plan that we come up with that's the plan of not God, we want to reject it immediately so that we can pursue the plan of God. We don't want to set ourselves up on an alternate course. Uh, the modern world likes to use the term alternative or alternate as if it's somehow acceptable, all right? If it's alternate, it's wrong. It's sin. It's evil. It's not of the plan of God. That's what we have to understand. Safety apart from the Savior is shameful. The second part of this. I'll get back to Isaiah 30 now. Safety apart from the Savior. You see, they do these things because they're looking for safety. They are to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh. And it's all about safety. You've got safety again in verse 3. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame. And what do you get when you compromise in order for safety? And why is that such a human tendency anyway? There's a lust for safety. The lust for safety is a human failure to recognize that you're in the will of God. 
All right, because what is safety anyway? When, when are you safe and when are you at risk? All right, when it comes right down to it, when you're in the plan of God, what danger are you in? And if harm befalls you, you're in the will of God. So what, were you unsafe when you were in the will of God and he allowed for harm to befall you? What is the whole definition of safety? See, I think, I think uh, we need to redefine certain things in light of the sovereignty of God because there's no such thing as unsafe when you're in the will of God. Even if harm befalls you, you're not unsafe. You're in the will of God. What could be safer than being where you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to be doing? Anyway, but this is the besetting sin. It's not just for, for Israel, for so many folks that cry, peace and safety, peace and safety, and Satan loves it. That's, you're, you're singing his music at that point. Satan loves to offer all the peace and safety he likes to offer. Of course, there's always strings attached and a price to pay, and anytime you utilize satanic provision, you're going you're gonna to suffer because of that. Safety apart from the Savior is shameful. Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9, I think, spell this out very well principles that we can start applying on a daily basis. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. I recommend this. Boy, you can take these verses and apply to all kinds of things. Plug this into your marriage, all right? Are you trusting in your husband, right? Is that why wives submit to their husbands? Because they trust in him and he has all the answers and he can do anything and solve it all. You trust, you submit as unto the Lord, all right, your faith is in the Lord. Or how about your pastor? He has all the answers. He knows everything, right? No, your trust is in the Lord. Cursed is the man that trusts in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. What about in a political application? Man, if we just vote for the right president, if we just wrote, vote for the right governor, if we just vote for the right... We could have what we think is the best administration ever. And what have we really accomplished? All right. We want to keep ourselves in the plan of God. This nation's problems is not political, not military, not economic. It's spiritual. We need believers to get with the plan of God. How about Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 8? Can't wait to get to Jeremiah. As Jeremiah had to preach the fall of Jerusalem from inside the fall of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he would be like a bush in the desert. Not a good thing. And will not see when the prosperity comes, but will live in a stony, in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. How's that for a picture? All right, is that what you want? Is that the imagery you want for your life? Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. So two pictures there. What do you want to be? The, 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 the tree firmly planted and well watered and fruit bearing and, and at rest? Or do you want to be the scraggly bush in the, uh, in the waste places? Okay, It's kind of a no-brainer and, uh, when it comes right down to it. All right, back to Isaiah. Oh, there's so much here we've got to deal with. Think about what they're doing. And they've already sent messengers. They've already sealed the deal. They've plundered the treasury in order to, to bribe the uh, officials of Egypt for their help. Let's move on to this oracle in verses 6 and following where we see that rebellion against God is delusional. I mean, really? You're abandoning the plan of God? Really? the creator God of the universe who has worked out all things from the Alpha to the Omega and you know better than he does or Satan knows better than he does or this, this other course seems better? The oracle concerning the beasts of the Negev through a land of distress and anguish from where comes lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on camel's humps to a people who cannot profit them. It's interesting, when they sent their messengers, when they sent the envoys to Egypt, they had to retrace the exodus in reverse order. They had to go back through the wilderness of, of, uh, of the Negev, all right? They couldn't take the, uh, 
the shorter route, the, the highway by the sea. They couldn't take the direct route to Egypt, just like in the Exodus. They couldn't take the, the direct route out of Egypt, that highway by the sea. Uh, that's where the Philistines were. There, were. there were great armies that the Lord didn't want them to be afraid of. So the Lord deliberately took him through the wilderness to bring him to Sinai, to take him to the place of the law, to provide for them in the wilderness. That was deliberate on the Lord's part when they made their exodus. Now they're retracing those steps. These envoys, they can't take the coast road either because these very Assyrians they're afraid of, they would be encountering those Assyrian troops between them in Egypt. So they've got to take the long way around. They've got to take the, 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 the Negev. They've got to go through the, the wilderness. They've got to risk death. They've got to risk fiery serpents. They've got to risk everything that, that they experienced in the wilderness wanderings. And they don't have the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. They don't have the Lord watching over them. They don't have the grace provision that they had during the Exodus. And they're willing to take that risk. They're willing to face that danger in order to obtain this satanically offered safety. Oh, I don't want to get lost in this because the vocabulary for lion and lioness are viper and flying serpent. The seraphim language we talk about with the flying seraphs. The imagery of this when in the wilderness they were bit by the serpents and they had to look to the, they had to look to the serpent to live. They had to look to the standard to live. So much doctrine in this. Anyway, let's talk about Rahab in verse 7. Is this the uh, harlot of Jericho? Who is this Rahab person, right? To a people who cannot profit them, even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty, therefore I have called her Rahab the do-nothing. Rahab the uh, who just sits. A lot of different ways we can handle this Hebrew text, and it's a little bit enigmatic in, in certain ways. Rahab, who has been exterminated, is probably my least favorite of all the translation options. But Rahab the do-nothing. Rahab, who just sits there. Not a bad way to render that. It's a taunting name. It's an absolute taunting name for Satan. Rahab is a term for Satan, not the Jericho harlot. Rahab refers to Satan. And we've studied this in our angelic studies. All right, verses 6 through 17, we're observing the second of the four main points from this chapter that rebellion against God is delusional. Rebellion against God is delusional. That's why we have all these passages of Scripture when believers wake up, they come to their senses, it says. Why is that? When the prodigal son's out there living with the pigs and eating worse than them, um, it says he came to his senses. There's a reason for that. Anytime you're living in, in uh, opposition to the plan of God, it's, it's delusional. It is absolutely insane. You're following after the courses of demons. All right, Rahab who just sits will be no help to Judah. The personal name for Leviathan. And this, is thing, this goes far deeper than anything we can touch today, but the personal name for Leviathan is of great significance in angelic studies. Remember we looked at Leviathan earlier. Remember chapter 24? Uh, Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, the twisted serpent, was a part of Isaiah's a, a little apocalypse in chapter 24. When spoken to directly by a given name, a poetic name, God calls Satan the Leviathan. He calls Satan Rahab. And it speaks of his arrogance. It speaks of his, that it's broad or wide or boastful or arrogant is the imagery there for the Hebrew Rahav, broad or wide. And it speaks of his pride and it speaks of um, his rebellion against the Lord. Um, so many places. And then here's the verses we can, uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but Job 9.13, Job 26.12, Psalm 89.10, our passage today in Isaiah 30, verse 7, is coming back again, by the way, in Isaiah 51 and verse 9. Specifically, it applies to Satan, and more often than not, it applies geographically to Egypt. Why did uh, Satan make Egypt a centerpiece of his plan and program on the earth the way that he did in the ancient world? He set up a headquarters in Egypt. He empowered the magicians of Egypt. There was a lot more going on than just Jewish people being delivered from uh, temporal life slavery. God was also breaking the power of those demons and those fallen angels in Satan in, in uh, the work assignment Moses and Aaron were given at the Exodus. All right. Rahab who just sits. Rahab who just sits. And so it's an insult. It's a name that he's given to Rahab, and it should be an insulting name. 
All right, and understand that this is addressed to Satan. This is addressed to the one who had all those prideful boasts. I will be like the Most High God. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. Satan had all these things he intended to do. I will, I will, I will, I will. Five of them. Five I wills. And what has he done? None of them. None of them. He who sits in the heavens laughs, calls him Rahab who sits there. (laughs) All right? Rahab who sits there. What are you doing now? So this is pretty interesting. You know, the book of Job is the earliest of all the books of the Old Testament. And he had an understanding for Rahab in ways that sometimes I wonder if we will ever reach his understanding. Talking about beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. That Rahab doesn't operate alone. Rahab has a whole structure of fallen angels and demons, a whole hierarchy of rulers and authorities, princes and powers called the helpers of Rahab, a bunch of crouching attackers there. Job 26, 12, He quieted the sea with His power. By His understanding, He shattered Rahab. That's not the Jericho harlot, all right? It's spelled differently in Hebrew too, by the way. So it's, just, it's unfortunate that the English spelling comes, comes across the way that it does. By His breath, the heavens are cleared. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are the fringes of His ways. (laughs) You know, we just have glimpses. The fringes of what God is really doing in the warfare against Satan and the fallen angels. And the little glimpses we have are sufficient to humble us, sufficient to remind us how puny we are, how much we need Him, how we better keep our armor on day by day. How do we possibly go toe-to-toe against Leviathan, right? Now Job 41 says we can't. Or if we do, we'll only do it once. All right? We need to stay armored up and give the battle to the Lord. Different applications there. Psalm 89.10 is another reference. You yourself crushed Rahab like one who was slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Here's the psalmist praising Yahweh for his victory over Rahab. Isaiah 30 is our passage today. And Isaiah 51.9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you? All right. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the deeps of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? I would love for them to make an Exodus movie that incorporated the slaying of the dragon along with the parting of the waters and the Israel's deliverance through and so forth. I just don't know that Hollywood has the kind of doctrine to do that. <laughs> All right? Anyway, and date it properly in the 16th century, not the stupid 12th century. Anyway. More on that. All right? If you want, uh, get a hold of our uh, angelology notebook. We've uh, dealt a lot with uh, the title of Leviathan, the title of Rahab, other uh, studies there for Satan. Yeah, just know that there's a lot of work to be done on that, more than we can accomplish on a day like today. Messengers of truth are hated when the lie is preferable. Let's get back to Isaiah chapter 30 and take a look at these verses, verses 9 through 11. These rebellious children, who are they listening to? I find this interesting. So, therefore I've called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. And the Lord instructs Isaiah now. He says, now go... Write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll. He's going to record it twice in two different modes, in two different mediums. One is on a tablet. I guess that's more durable. That's for public display, a monument outdoors maybe. And then the other one is rolled up in a scroll, inscribed it on a scroll. Maybe that's kept away in a, in a uh, lockbox somewhere or who knows. But it's written in two places. Anytime there's two or three witnesses, we have confirmation that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen. Sons who refuse to listen. 21st century American Christianity, how about that? How about a whole generation of born-again believers that don't have time for doctrine, don't have time for the Word of God, they're too busy, whatever, chasing mammon or doing what they're doing, living life. They won't listen. Sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions. 
<laughs> All right. Can you imagine telling a prophet, stop doing that? Stop having those dreams. Stop seeing those visions. Or if you, if you see it, quit telling us about it. To the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Would you please? Give me something happy. It's Mother's Day. Come on, give me some, give me some pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Prophesy illusions. Think about it. That's pretty blatant, isn't it? But is that not what most people are doing? They are, they are willingly being lied to and they want to be lied to. They don't want to know the truth from the Word of God that convicts them. Hmm. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. The audience always knows what they want and is able to tell the prophet what it is that he needs to do. Just get out of the way. We know what we're doing. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Well, therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel. Glad you mentioned me. Here's what I have to say. (laughs) Since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, all right, face the consequences. Guess what? You reap what you sow. God designed you with volitional accountability. God commanded you to hear His voice. You start turning to those fallen angels, you start turning to those demons, volitionally you may do so, but you will regret it. Here are the consequences. Therefore, this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant. And I like that. What happens is the wall starts to bulge. You start to see a little bit of a bulge, right? careful. You start to see a little bit of a bulge and then the bulge grows and grows and grows because God is merciful. He's giving time to repent. But when it bursts, look out because it's been a long time coming and you saw it coming and he told you before it was coming. Whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a assured will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or scoop water from a cistern. Okay? Even the, the little pieces, the little pieces are so crumbly small, uh, you can't even dip them in the salsa anymore. That's how small your chips have become. Okay? That's how smashed Jerusalem is going to become. That there's not even a pottery shard big enough to even scoop some ashes out of the fire. Or even water from a cistern. Messengers of truth are hated when the lie is preferable. All right, it's not only our text today, it's not only Isaiah 30 that talks about this, but 1 Kings 22 talks about this, Second Timothy 4, I quote that one a lot because that's a New Testament application that we see in our day and age. 1 Kings 22, verses 7 and 8. <laughs> Makes me laugh every time I read this. King, of Je- uh, king Jehoshaphat's a good king in the south, he goes up to the north to kind of confer with his, uh, the other Jewish king in the northern kingdom. And uh, Jehoshaphat said, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of him? You know, I hear what all these Baal worshipers have to say and all these other false prophets. Don't you have any Yahweh prophets up here in the north? You know, if we were down in Jerusalem, we've got Yahweh prophets and we've got priests and we've got a temple and so forth. So Jehoshaphat said, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. (laughs) Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. I look forward to meeting that man one day. I think he was a great hero and his faithfulness to minister in the north. Very interesting. And so Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Let's hear what he has to say. And sure enough, he comes and he prophesies doom and the king of the north isn't happy with it. He says, see, I told you. I told you. All right, so we have the application there. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. This is why pastors have to stay faithful. This is why pastors, when the men we train, they better get ready because in their generation it's going to be worse than this generation. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. 
For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and that won't include you. (laughs) All right? Just be ready for it. They will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Might expect that to be the keynote address this November when Dan Cross stands for his ordination. All right? This is... This is the charge for faithful pastors in the church age. Back to Isaiah. All right. So let us hear no more of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel. The very guy you don't want to hear from. That's the guy you need to hear from. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were unwilling. Man, there's a a Sunday sermon or two. All right. You know how much doctrine is in that one verse right there? In repentance and rest, you will be saved. You know, national deliverance is much like personal salvation. We have these elements of repentance. We have to change our thinking. Quit trying to save ourselves. Quit trying to think that we're okay. Rest. Quit trying to do it ourselves. What can we do to to save ourselves? What can our nation do to save ourselves? So many parallels here between a national deliverance and, of course, your personal deliverance. The elements of repentance and rest, quietness and trust. You mean it's by faith? <laughs> I want to do something. I want to do something, right? If you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. Well, not you. Okay. Maybe God said that because He did it Himself. He accomplished what we could not do. He died on the cross that we could have eternal life. Our role is repentance, peace, the elements that we see here, quietness and trust, waiting upon Him, watching His plan unfold, accepting what He promises, accepting what He offers. And if He says, this is rest, take it. (laughs) why not? It's free. It's without cost. He already paid the price. But you were not willing. See, here's the thing. He he designed us with volitional accountability. He's not going to force it on us. He's not going to make anyone accept His eternal life that won't accept it on His terms. You were not willing. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Yeah, here's my plan. <laughs> we, can, we can save ourselves. We just need faster horses. Egypt's got some pretty fast horses. Let's buy those. Therefore, you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. Okay? Right? There's always a faster horse. There's always a bigger fish. Think about it. Anytime you're trying to do something yourself apart from his plan 1000 will flee at the threat of one man how ridiculous is that realize when you get when you when you plunge into cycles of fear cycles of of uh, rebellion against the lord we've already mentioned it's insanity we've already mentioned it's delusional and now you've been scared for so long you're scared of everything you're scared of this, you're scared of that, you're scared of, you've been scared of everything for so long, you've forgotten why you were scared of it in the first place, you just know you're scared of it. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. That doesn't make any sense. Well, you're right. You will flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop, as a signal on a hill. And the only thing left is the sad memory of what used to be there. There's a lonely little flag sitting on top of that hill over there and you used to hold that hill until you decided to run. Isn't that interesting? I meant to put a picture up here. I was going to get a a lonely photo of the American flag that's still on the moon to this day, right? What's it doing up there? It's been there as long as I've been alive. It got planted there in 1969. And what's it been doing there? Nothing. Just sitting there. And I think it's... A metaphor. It's a, it's a illustration. It's a sermon illustration for this very concept right here. All that's left is a sad reminder of 
someone that used to be there. We couldn't go back to the moon today if we wanted to. Not for a long, long time. What's, what's our space program like these days? Well, there was a day, and all that's left is a sad reminder of just a flag on a mountaintop as a signal on a hill. Who's going to rally to that banner? Verses 18 and following. This is really the meat of the message right here. I'm glad we had time to get here. Much of God's plan centers on waiting. You ever think about that? So much of his plan centers on waiting. Remember, God is an eternal being. We need to be thinking with an eternal perspective. Let's stop being so finite. Let's stop being so impatient. This is hard for 21st century Americans. Everything in our life is on demand. Microwave popcorn, why does it take three minutes? That's too long. Right? Goodness. I want it now, on demand, immediately. The idea of longing. Even God waits. Starting in verse 18, notice what it says here. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. This is where longing becomes long-suffering. Because in rebellion, we're not, <laughs> we're not making ourselves available for the grace of God. In our rebellion, we're making ourselves available for the wrath of God. And so he's long-suffering as he longs to be gracious to us. He longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him. So there's two longings that happen here in this context. God himself is longing and we are to long. We are rewarded if we long for him as a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee. Do we pant? Do we long for the Lord? We have the, uh, the opportunity here. And that's what's going to happen. O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. All right, when he hears it, what's keeping him from hearing it now? Well, their iniquity is keeping him from hearing it now. But all that is just a confession away. Though the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression. Look at that. He gave that to you. Thank him for it. Are you thankful for the bread of privation he gives you? It's supposed to teach you something. You will then be even more thankful for the bread of abundance when that season comes. But for now, be thankful for the bread of privation and the water of oppression. Be thankful for it. It's designed to wake you up and return you to the true walk of faith. He, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Oh, there he is. I think of the words of Jacob when he was fleeing his brother and he's sleeping that night in Bethel and he wakes up and he sees the angels of the Lord arising, you know, going up and going down on the ladder, Jacob's ladder, right? And what does he say? He says, Behold, the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Well, why didn't you know it? You should have. You didn't have eyes to see it. What were you looking at? All too often we finally see God's provision and was staring at us all along. We just weren't ready to see it yet. We were carnal. We were walking in darkness. I like this. He says, your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way, right? A little whisper. This is the way. You think you're all alone, but he's right behind you. He's right there with you. He whispers in your ear. This is it. This is the path. You're on it. This is the way. Walk in it. And whenever you turn to the right or to the left, there's a little voice. Don't turn there. No, no, don't turn there. This is where you are. Okay. Are you walking with the Lord? Are you faith hearing like we're learning about in Galatians right now? We should be. God himself awaits for occasions of grace and compassion. He's just waiting. And it's our blessing to wait on him. It's our blessing to wait on him for the wisdom of his manifest promises. We have passage after passage after passage where we're told it's our blessing to wait on God. Isaiah 30, verse 18b. We talk about Isaiah 64, 4. So how blessed are those who long for him, who wait for him. This too, I think, is a characteristic of disciples and it's not a characteristic of most believers. 
Most believers are very happy to go to heaven when they die because they don't want to go to hell when they die, but they're not in a hurry to get there. They're certainly not longing for it. They're not longing to be with the Lord. They'd be very happy if, if they can go to heaven when they die, and if that can be you know, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years from now. No rush. We're having fun here and now. Okay? Maybe it's easier when you're older <laughs> and you have more of the, the aches and the pains and the more of the uh, expectation of the earthly tent being torn down and, and uh, maybe there's a more of an, uh, of an eagerness to, uh, to depart and have the, have the heavenly body. But are we longing for Him? Did we wake up this morning disappointed that we were still on earth? Oh, man. Because it was an alarm clock that went off and not the trumpet sounding. Oh, man. That's another day to be here. 64.4. It'll come back at the end of, uh, near the end, chapter 64, near the end of uh, Isaiah. From days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God beside you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. Are you waiting upon the Lord? That's who he provides for. That's who he guides. That's who he takes care of. The one who waits for him. Habakkuk 2.3 For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. How many people start mocking the rapture because it hadn't happened yet? Well, it's been 2,000 years and we haven't had the trumpet yet. There's not going to be a rapture. There's not going to be a second advent. Are you kidding me? And that's what we deal with in 2 Peter chapter 3. In the end times, mockers come with their mocking. Where is the promise of His coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it has been since the beginning of creation until now. No, though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. It's right on schedule. We're just too impatient. As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. You think you know better than God on the timing of these things? He calls you the proud one and your soul is not right. For the righteous will live by faith. There's that Habakkuk passage we kept talking about last hour. Zephaniah 3.8, Therefore wait for me. Psalm 27.13 Here's a good one. Here's David. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Learn from the example of David. You know, if you don't have faith, why are you enduring the test you're enduring? What point is there? If we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Remember that? Romans 8.25 How do you hope for that which you already see? That's why it's faith. That's why it's hope. And we're waiting eagerly. Waiting eagerly. That's our blessing. We're waiters. Didn't know that, did you? Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. That's a principle. It tells us we're not judging one another. We're not condemning one another. I'm not your judge. You're not my judge. We're both waiting for the judgment seat of Christ. Then you'll receive your reward. I'll receive my reward. How about that? Let's love one another in the meantime. Build one another up. Keep on waiting until the Lord comes. Philippians 3.20 Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The definition of a church-age saint? We're the waiters. (laughs) We're the waiters because He left after His first advent and said, I'm coming again. to eagerly wait for a Savior. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 He's thanking God that they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. I'm not worried about going to hell when I die and I'm not worried about going through the tribulation when Antichrist arises because my Savior is the one who rescues me from the wrath to come. So we've turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. All right? We're all waiters. Have you ever think about it? Did you used to be a waiter? I was a waiter. Three years as, as a waiter in high school before I got to the army. I don't know that I would ever be a waiter ever again, but 
It was okay for the three years I did it. We're all waiters. We're waiting for Him to come. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. All right, well, it's the top of the hour. This is our communion Sunday. The last paragraph is verses 23 through 27. No, 27 through 33. And boy, we'd have to talk about Topheth. We have to talk about the fire that's prepared. Topheth has long been ready, it says. You know that? Topheth has long been ready. Well, yeah, judgment is not idle. Destruction is not asleep. The eternal fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. There is wrath ready. See, some count his slowness as no judgment. No, no. Judgment is prepared. The fire is prepared. It has long been, it's overdue. It is absolutely overdue. Why has the church age tarried as long as it has? Because our God is merciful, because he's a God of grace. But the fire is prepared, absolutely prepared. Do we have a sense of urgency in our evangelism? We have loved ones without Christ. This is, we better understand, Topheth is ready. Topheth has long been ready. Not a pleasant topic. <laughs> But I'm out of time. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your son. Thank you for sending your son in our place. I thank you, Father, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That your son humbled himself. He laid aside his glory. The second member of Trinity, Father, entered into the virgin. You prepared a body for him. Born in a manger. Lived an earthly walk no sin, perfection on display, and yet perfection that had to die. Father, he went to the cross that we might have eternal life. I ask, Father, for a sense of urgency. I ask for a sense of eagerness that we might be ready to communicate this truth. That if we have friends or family or loved ones or neighbors or enemies or anybody, Father, that is without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life, that they might see your truth in us. They might ask us for an account for the hope that is within us. And that we might have an answer, yet with gentleness, Father. We don't, there's no condemnation. There's no judgment. We're no better than they are, Father. They're sinners, we're sinners, but we're sinners saved by grace. And I pray that we might be eager to communicate this gospel truth to this lost and dying world. Thank you for Isaiah. Thank you for his faithfulness. People in his day didn't want to hear it. People in our day don't want to hear it. Isaiah stayed faithful, Father. According to the tradition, he was sawn in half in the, in the human rejection of his prophetic ministry. And Father, what, what's in store for us if we keep telling the truth, if we keep preaching your word, what happens to us? We get accused of hate and everything else. Now, that's in your hands too, Father. Keep us faithful. Keep us in your word. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.